Well, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Is this, is this working, Adam? Yes, am I back on? Uh, well, good morning. Um, I was in, a, in Dublin yesterday, and the organizers of the meeting that I was at, in the light of the concern over the coronavirus, suggested that we replace handshakes with jazz hands. And um, I said to them, you really understand the Ulster character, don't you? Um, so you're very welcome this morning, uh, even though we didn't shake your hand. Um, so in this talk, we are going to think biblically about the thing called anxiety. Anxiety is best described as a feeling of unease ah, when the mind's occupied with fear or worry. Now, often anxiety, of course, is a perfectly normal and healthy reaction to life circumstances. Maybe you're walking into an examination room uh, or you sit down in front of a panel for a job interview. In the book of the Bible called Joshua, we meet uh, Joshua. When we first meet him, he's full of anxiety, but no wonder. Uh, Moses, who had been his boss, has just died. Uh, leaving Joshua to lead a million people into unknown territory. So Joshua's anxiety was to be expected. However, medical professionals have identified a range of so-called anxiety disorders. They talk of general anxiety, uh, which is a condition where people feel anxious most days for no specific reason. They often struggle to remember the last time they felt relaxed. As soon as one anxious thought is resolved, another may appear uh, about a different issue. And then there are panic attacks. Panic attacks are another anxiety disorder. Some of you may have heard of the Christian philosopher called J.P. Morgan. He's one of the most respected philosophers in the world today. But he describes a time when he was overcome with a sense of panic. It was on May the 24th, 2003 at 2.30 a.m. in the morning. And he said, I awoke dripping with sweat, my heart pounding through my chest, my body filled with electricity and adrenaline, it was as though I sensed a large tiger in the house. And then there are people who can suffer from social anxiety disorders, which cause them to dread everyday activities such as meeting strangers or starting conversations or speaking on the phone. Social anxiety disorders are part of a more general class of disorders called phobias. And some phobias can make life debilitating, making normal living difficult. And then finally, there is a thing called OCD, which stands for Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. Now, OCD is a, a complex mental disorder in which unwanted thought repeatedly enters the mind. And the OCD sufferer then responds to that obsessive thought with compulsive behavior, usually some form of ritual behavior like hand washing, uh, which probably in the current circumstances is pretty good uh, to try and um, move the thinking process on. Now, it is really important that I say this up front. I'm not going to talk about any of those disorders because anyone diagnosed with an anxiety disorder should place their confidence in medical professionals. Advances in MRI imaging have demonstrated that anxiety disorders have a chemical foundation. Whenever a brain is functioning normally, I don't quite know why I'm pointing at my own brain here, but anyway, neural pathways for a moment can light up like a Christmas tree when something alarming happens, but then the neurons quickly dampen down to a normal level. However, when you look at the brain of somebody with an anxiety disorder, the Christmas tree lights stay on. So medication is a really important aspect of the treatment of anxiety disorders. And then counseling is also very helpful. CBT, or cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, can help stop negative thought cycles by breaking problems down into, their, uh, into smaller, more manageable parts. It's always good to think about your emotions. 
So given what I've said, why are we thinking about this topic today? Am I just playing the role of amateur psychologist here? Or does the gospel have anything to say about anxiety? And I'm going to suggest two reasons why we should think biblically about anxiety. And the first is that mental health has become a pressing problem for many families today, including families in this room. The strange thing is that properly diagnosed anxiety disorders haven't increased much over the years. But there's been a huge increase in what some doctors call mental health light. Now, they're not being derogatory in using that term. They're describing a large number of people who have tendencies toward various mental health disorders, but who still manage to function adequately in society. So a lot of people today, while they would not be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, they still struggle uh, with things that map onto the categories that I've just been talking about. So that's the first reason. The second reason that we should address this topic is that ultimately the gospel must speak into the real issues of life. And I think we will see that it does. The Bible actually has quite a lot to say about anxiety. In the end, all of life's problems can be traced back to spiritual matters. Now in this talk I intend to describe three long-term processes. Each of them is based on a biblical or a theological concept. And it's my hope that these three processes, which may operate in your life over decades will underpin all the good work done by medical professionals. They will complement the work of doctors and counselors. They certainly don't compete with them. So let's consider the first of these three theological foundations of anxiety by reading from Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Pew Bible 811. The Lord Jesus is speaking, and he says in verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I drop down to verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And we'll stop there. At first sight, the Lord Jesus seems to be giving us unrealistic advice here. Suppose someone gets made redundant. We find them staring at their bank statement. They can't see how they're going to buy school uniforms for their kids next year. So surely they are entitled in that circumstance to worry about clothing. Well, it's important that we understand the Lord's words in their context here. And the words we have just read come from, of course, that famous Sermon on the Mount. Christ has come to the silent planet. He's come into a world driven by materialistic values. In the language of Ecclesiastes, a world like ours thinks that everything is under the sun. There's nothing to life except material stuff. And into that world comes the man from heaven. And he introduces us to God, our Father in heaven. The God who sustains and cares for us every day of our lives. And in this great sermon, he talks about what is real and important in life. Okay, What is truly valuable. And that gives us the key to understanding this teaching about anxiety. 
So here we are. The first of our three long processes is to appreciate what is truly valuable in life. Over the years, as we learn from Scripture, as we walk in step with the Spirit of God, our values gradually change. Things that we used to think as pure gold start to look like a child's plastic toy. I'm talking here about things like status, or being admired by strangers, or having ridiculous amounts of money, or occupying a powerful position in society. We start to see those things don't matter. And at the same time, things that we used to sneer at, perhaps, we now start to see as treasure in heaven. The construction of a Christ-like character. The development of capacities that will be of eternal value. The gold of faith. These are the things we start to appreciate as really valuable. A few weeks ago, uh, we were looking at Psalm 27. <clears throat> and, the Lord is full, uh, sorry, and the psalmist is full of anxiety in that psalm. But he asks that he might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All the days of my life, he says, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And that seems to be a really curious antidote to anxiety. But the result, he says, is that his head will be lifted above my enemies all around me. So, the more the psalmist starts to appreciate the beauty of holiness, the more he values what the Lord calls treasure in heaven, the easier he finds it to look down on the petty squabbles of this world and not let them worry him. So what if some nasty bully in work gets more status and money than you? There was a time in my early career when I had to work for a bully. I experienced enormous stress at that time. But looking back on that period of my life, I realized that most of the stress would have been dissipated if I hadn't been so worried about my own career. I really thought that this man had the power to ruin all my dreams. Well, maybe he had. The problem was I had the wrong dreams. There's a really good example of this principle from Luke 10. William already mentioned it. Two sisters called Martha and Mary. And Martha was a perfectionist. The young adults in the room will recognize perfectionism as the source of most of the anxieties in your life. And Martha wanted to put on the best show she could to impress the maximum number of people. And she becomes anxious. <clears throat> she sees her sister Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him speak. And she storms up to Jesus to complain. I'm sure the Lord had a tender smile on his face when he answered, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is necessary. His point was, there are many things that are nice, but there's really only one thing that's necessary. And the lovely thing is that Martha learned her lesson. When we next meet her, she has set her perfectionism aside, and she has asked for help in the practical business of cooking and serving a meal. So that's the first long-term process that can operate in your life. Over time, through good teaching and through the trials of life, we come to appreciate what is really valuable in life. And that starts to subvert the idolatrous thinking that can produce so much of the anxiety in our lives. For our second process, let's now read from 1 John, 1 John's first epistle and chapter 4. Page, Pew Bible, 1023. 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 15. John 4, starting at 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. 
By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. My first point was appreciate what is truly valuable in life. My second is know that you are loved. The first principle taught us that true beauty is the antidote to fear. Here we learn that love is the antidote to fear. Now, I'm sure you notice John's logic. First, he says, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And having established that, he then goes on to say that God's perfect love drives out fear. Perhaps someone listening to me now suffers from anxiety. And there must have been times in your life when you looked enviously at people who seemed to sail through life without a care in the world. I remember once visiting SeaWorld in Florida before that was a politically incorrect thing to do. And I stood for a while looking through a piece of armored glass at two polar bears. One of the bears paced continually up and down along an iced walkway, sniffing the air suspiciously every few moments. It then glared contemptuously at its companion before returning to nervous pacing. The other polar bear was floating on its back in the water, completely at peace. Every so often it gave a lazy kick that moved it from one side of the enclosure to the other. The only thing missing was a pair of sunglasses and a fruit cocktail. (coughs) I should really use my elbow. Our brains are all wired differently. We all have unique fault lines running through our personalities. No one gets to choose their mental struggles. But I'm sure that those of you who struggle with anxiety must look enviously at those who do not. Why would God bring this difficulty into your life? I could be wrong here, but I suspect the Apostle John would understand that question very well. When we first meet John, he is an aggressive, angry young man. He exhibits complete certainty. He has no self-doubt. He's probably the product of a competitive mother. Mrs. Zebedee was was hugely ambitious for her two boys. But I'm not sure John experienced a lot of motherly love in his early days. Sometimes mothers like that use their children to project their own ambitions. Anyway, John meets Christ and encounters, encounters the selfless love of God. He finds rest leaning on Jesus' chest in the upper room. And it's interesting that in his gospel, John never refers to himself by name. He always calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that shows just how deeply Christ's love had affected his sense of identity. And at the end of the Lord's uh, life on earth, the Lord gives his own mother into John's care. And through that action, John learned to love others, and he also experienced the real love of a mother, perhaps for the first time. Then catastrophe entered John's life when his big brother James was killed. And he doesn't seem to have shown much leadership in the early church. Maybe all his earlier certainties had come crashing down. Why had God brought him so low, he must have wondered. Wow. Fast forward to John as an old man. We meet him, and you see the wisdom of God. By that stage, he is known as the beloved elder, the one who wrote the Gospel of John and the three epistles. And by this stage, John had come to know and to love the Father that Jesus loved. He rejoices in being a loved child of God. And when he reflects on all his anxieties and his fears, he concludes that perfect love drives out fear. Anyone who suffers from anxiety 
can follow the same path as the Apostle John. Over decades, you can gain first-person subjective knowledge that you are loved by God. Let me speak directly into your heart now with all the Bible's authority. You are loved by God. If you are his child, there should be no fear of, ju- no fear of judgment. His love for you is constant. It's unchanging. If he loved you yesterday, he will love you tomorrow. He will always have your best interest at heart. Now contrast that beautiful truth with the terror of the atheist's world, cast adrift in an implacably hostile universe at the mercy of dumb impersonal forces. There is no benevolent father. There's just entropy and gravity. Come back from that horror. Return to the truth of the gospel and let the knowledge that you are loved drive out your anxieties. I've told you this story before. I love it so much I'm going to repeat it. It's about a film called The Bear. And it followed the life of a bear cub as it grew up in the wildest parts of Canada. And at one point in the film, the little bear is apparently, little cub is apparently in real trouble. It's being hunted by this mean, dangerous mountain lion. The cub's life looks increasingly threatened by this predator. But suddenly the mountain lion stops in its tracks and scurries away. The camera pans back to reveal what, until that point, we could not see. Right behind the cub, reared up on its hind legs, is the cub's adopted father. This unbelievably massive grizzly bear. The viewer's fears for the cub were unfounded. Just we couldn't see the full picture. It's only when the camera pans back that we realize with relief that the cub was as secure as it could be. Protected by someone more powerful than any predator. There are so many things in life that can threaten your sense of peace. That can make you anxious. Like that little bear cub. Our entire life can seem like a fragile thing. But in Romans 8, when Paul pulls the camera back, what do we see? Standing right behind us is something that will make a mockery of all our fears. Rearing up behind us is the eternal God himself, the first and the last, who was and is and ever shall be, world without end. And you get to call him Abba Father. Because you are the son You are the daughter he loves. He regards you as more precious than all the galaxies in this universe. So know you are loved. Our first long-term process was to appreciate what is truly valuable. The second was to know that you are loved. And for the final process, let's now turn to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John and chapter 10. Pew Bible 896. In some ways, all I want to do here is leave the lovely picture which the Apostle paints, hoping that it will lock into your imagination. We're going to read John 10, verses 7 through 14. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hard hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hard hand and cares nothing for the sheep. 
I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. In the ancient world, there was a real bond between sheep and their shepherd. Over time, the sheep learned to recognize their shepherd's voice. If they heard a stranger's voice, they would run away. But when the flock recognized their shepherd's voice, they trusted him so much, they followed without question. There are three shepherd pictures in this chapter, and we just read the second one. And it's this beautiful little pastoral scene up in the hills. The sheep aren't looking at the shepherd. Notice that. Their heads are down. Their teeth are cropping the green, lush grass of the pasture lands. They don't need to worry about wolves or bears. They seem to be obsessed with bears today, but anyway. Why not? Because they are aware in the back of their minds of this reassuring, protective presence of the shepherd. They know he won't run away and abandon them to a predator. No, he will always protect them from trouble. So in the words of that beautiful aria by Bach, sheep may safely graze. Now that's a lovely picture of the companionship of Christ in our lives. He's just this quiet, reassuring, protective presence in our daily lives. He, he never makes a fuss. He doesn't intrude into our daily affairs. But we know that he is there, looking out for us. Well, you say so much for the illustration. But the key question is, how do I build such an intimate, trusting relationship with Christ in my life? <clears throat> so my final point, the third long-term process, is to learn to trust the first step is to learn to recognize Christ's voice by soaking ourselves in the Bible. We learn what Christ values, how he goes about things, how he treats people in real situations. And then, in our daily walk, the Spirit of God can use the Word of God to remind us of Jesus' voice. It's that quiet reminder which lets the follower of Jesus know what to do. Now, the sheep and shepherd analogy has limitations, of course. In our relationship with the Good Shepherd... We don't just listen. We can talk to him. That's why Paul in Philippians 4 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I used to think Paul was being dangerously unrealistic here. Do not be anxious about anything. His words seem to just pile up guilt about feeling anxious. But notice what he's doing here. He is contrasting anxiety with prayer. Someone once famously said, anxiety is having a conversation with yourself about something you can't change. Prayer is having a conversation with God about something he can change. So prayer becomes a real antidote to anxiety. Sometimes we can sin by stubbornly refusing to discuss our anxieties with God. But when we do talk to him and listen to his voice, then like those sheep in John 10, we can know this quiet, reassuring and protective presence at the back of our minds. And perhaps this aspect of the gospel is particularly important to people who suffer from OCD. Christians with OCD tendencies can become terribly anxious over their own salvation. Maybe they worry they have committed the unforgivable sin. Or they've so messed up that they must never have been Christians in the first place. And in my pastoral experience, young Christians with obsessive personality tendencies often exhibit a form of what we might call internal paranoia. Their minds go into meltdown because of an inability to trust anything. 
It's a form of emotional doubt that will be not, well, won't be fixed by appeals to the rational grounds of Christianity, Christian belief. And I wonder if the answer here is to trust a person. To build up a knowledge of the shepherd's voice that will be heard through the clamor of lies that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Someone once said to me that the deepest longing for the obsessive compulsive personality is to stop the churning and to find rest. Well, hear the quietly spoken voice of Christ now. Come unto me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. So maybe when the neurons in your brain are lighting up like a Christmas tree, when the mind storm is at its worst, you will learn to invite the Savior into the boat with you. Maybe he will calm the storm. Or maybe he'll just sit quietly with you. You may even think that he's asleep. But here's the thing. He's not worried. He's the master of the sea. So stay with him and ride out the storm knowing his reassuring, calm presence will never go away. So we've thought about three long, drawn-out, deep processes that can change us over time. By appreciating what is truly valuable, by knowing that we are loved, and by learning to trust, we can tackle the problem of anxiety at its deepest roots. And it is these three great truths that can underpin the really useful practical steps like taking medication or using CBT. A Christian medic I respect deeply once described the boundary between medicine and theology in this area like this. She said, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, says this probably won't happen. But Christianity says, even if it does happen, you'll be okay. There is no gap in the floor with Christianity. There is nowhere to fall because the gospel is a rock. Once I appreciate what is truly valuable, once I know that I am loved by God, once I have learned to trust the good shepherd, then what shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? I close with this final thought. It's perhaps unrealistic to expect that a Christian whose mind is tortured with anxiety will suddenly get fixed completely. It's often the case that various forms of anxiety do disappear uh, as people get older. But there may always be a lingering tendency to fear and to worry within some people. That may have been the Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh, for all we know. But imagine for a moment the opposite. Imagine if you had been cursed with a complete sense of self-sufficiency. Imagine you went through life like that laid-back polar bear, just enjoying the moment. How would you develop the gold of faith? How would you build up treasure in heaven? How would you develop the capabilities and the capacities that will shine for all eternity? The Lord in his wisdom may have allowed this struggle in your life so that you will appreciate what is of eternal value, so that you will learn to love and to trust. Remember that in the new heaven and the new earth, you will have a mind as clear as crystal, bursting with optimism and health and profound security. So these struggles are only temporary. But it is in the struggle of life that we produce the really valuable things in our characters. And character is the only thing that will be left of you after the judgment seat of Christ. So reflect on the outcomes of your struggle. In so doing, you will see them as worthwhile. And then grit your teeth. Resolve to appreciate what is truly valuable. To know that you are loved. And to learn to trust. We're going to have a final hymn.